for the first time in, in history at HBS, all of our students are going to graduate with some fundamental understanding of carbon accounting. And we're hoping for, uh, for this case to be adopted more widely. Really, uh, HBS cases are often used around the world. And so we're hoping to seed the world with managers who have a, a better understanding of some of these really fundamental issues of climate change. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. Today, we're really fortunate to have with us a leader in the study of environmental management, my Harvard colleague, Michael Toffel, who is the Senator John Hines Professor of Environmental Management and Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School and I'm pleased to say a faculty fellow of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Mike, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thanks very much, Rob. So now I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about the business world of energy, environment, and climate change, and we'll certainly get to that. But I know from experience that our listeners will enjoy hearing about how you came to be where you are and where you've been. So let's start with where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, in Westchester County in New York, in both uh, Terrytown area and White Plains. So does that mean that's where you were for primary school and high school? Yep. I went to White Plains High School in, uh, in White Plains, New York. And then you graduated high school. And then did you immediately go on? Is it Lehigh University for your bachelor's degree? Yep, that's right. I went to Lehigh in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, majored in government, minored in psychology for a while there. I was not at all sure what I was going to major in, but I knew I wanted to do a liberal arts degree mm -hmm. and uh, really enjoyed the experience there. Yeah, I'm a huge supporter of liberal arts degrees, have, having studied what's perhaps the ultimate one, philosophy as an undergraduate. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know that. So next up for you, you graduated in 1990. You went to J.P. Morgan. Am I right about that? That's right. Yep. I went to New York. Uh, had really had a wide search to figure out what I wanted to do. Did I want to work at a nonprofit? Did I want to work at a company? And uh, really just through luck, JP Morgan came on campus, did some interviewing, mm -hmm. and I didn't know anything about finance, but it turned out this role was in operations. So it was trying to figure out how to make the bank more efficient. Uh -huh. And that's had intuitive appeal to me. And, uh, and so that's the direction I went. And they had a great training program, which I think they still operate where you got to spend a few months in different areas of the bank. And then I eventually went into our exchange traded products group doing operations work there as well mm -hmm. and stayed there for three years. But I knew I was never really going to be a banker for my whole career, but it was a great place to start. Now, somehow as a result of having been there, when you went to Yale, you didn't just do what we might expect, which would be the MBA degree, but you also received a master's degree in environmental management. Is that from what used to be called the forestry school? That's right. Yep. At the time, it was the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Uh, and in fact, that's where I went directly. I, I was trying to think, what do I want to do next? I see. And so, uh, you know, one of the recommendations that I give now is the basis of my career choices, which is what do you read when you have spare time, hmm. in either fiction or nonfiction, the news? And what was drawing my attention at the time really was the business and environment space. The Newt Gingrich revolution in, mm -hmm. in Washington was right. trying to def defund 
the EPA and a lot of uh, government. We had the Earth First movement, which was eco-terrorism being brought to bear um, on some of the West Coast ski resorts and, and other places trying to reduce the expansion of ski resorts. And I thought, gosh, there must be a middle, a middle way mm-hmm. through. And wouldn't it be interesting to work at a company to try and figure out what their opportunities and constraints were in improving their environmental performance? And so I thought, well, I worked at JP Morgan. I've been working on Wall Street for a couple of years. Let me go check out the other side, which is the environment side. Mm-hmm. So I actually applied directly only to the, to the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. They had an industrial environmental management program there. I thought would give me a little bit of a taste of the business side too. But once I was there, I quickly realized that I didn't know nearly as much about business as I needed to. And mm-hmm. then I applied to the to the School of Management and got in. And so then I ended up staying there for, for three years uh, doing the joint program. So in fact, it was then a joint program. So you saved That's a right. year in total. Is that right? That's right. You sort yeah. of buy three and get one free. Right, right. Now, so you, you graduate... Uh, in 1996 from the joint degree program, what was next? So then I was thinking, so I had done an internship at Xerox in their corporate environmental management program. Mm -hmm. I had done an internship in consulting here in the Boston area at Arthur D. Little. Mm -hmm. And so really I was thinking I would go in one of those two directions, either in consulting or in corporate. So I uh, went to Arthur Anderson, which they had a small consulting group in environment health and safety management based in in Chicago, but I worked in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and discovered uh, I really did not like all the travel and the in and outs of the companies and would rather work at a company to be able to have a longer term relationships with people and mm-hmm. with the projects that I was working on. And so I got recruited uh, by a classmate from Yale mm-hmm. to work at uh, a family company that he was part of in based in Singapore to help lead their corporate environment, health and safety efforts, which my friend had just launched the year before. And so that took me uh, to live in Singapore, uh, which I had never been really spent any time in Asia. Uh, So I lived in Singapore with the operations throughout Southeast Asia. So I was traveling to Malaysia and the Philippines and to Indonesia and uh, Thailand and -hmm. working with a bunch of operating companies to identify their environment, health and safety risks and help them uh, develop policies and procedures to manage those risks. And it was a fabulous opportunity for me. And I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have really that hands-on experience mm-hmm. while living and seeing really the different cultures. It's, in America, we refer to it, the region as Southeast Asia or ASEAN, but boy, are these countries different. Right. And I got a close-up view of that, which was, which was fascinating. So you went from consulting and advising on it to actually doing it at Jebson & Jensen. Is that right? That's right. That's a Jebson & Jensen Southeast Asia group of companies. Yeah. And I was in the corporate office in Singapore, but every day was out there in the field uh, working in our warehouses and factories to try and identify these issues with folks who were coming up to speed. And of course, I was also coming up to speed. So I got to hire consultants who are specialists in some of these areas and learned a lot through that experience. But at some point at your time in Singapore and traveling in Southeast Asia and work, it it, it appears that you began to think of the potential value of some additional schooling. Yeah. So the idea of pursuing a PhD was really born for me when I was at Yale and Mm -hmm. I got to know at the Forestry and Environmental Studies School, now the School of the Environment, uh, the idea that well you can come you you can study what you want uh, as a PhD student and then become an academic and teach and do research in that area and I, it really sounded quite appealing but 
I thought the instructors that I had who had work experience in the domains in which they taught really brought a bunch of realism to the classroom with, mm-hmm. that I really found appealing. And so mm-hmm. that was my sense from Yale is I wanted to go and do some of this work that I had come to Yale to go do, and then rethink later on whether I wanted to go back to academia. And so I had that in my mind the whole time I was in New York, I see. Arthur Anderson, and then and then in Singapore. So I started really exploring it more in depth when I was in Singapore, trying to network back in the US with academics who were mm-hmm. doing work in this business and environment corporate environmental space, went to some academic conferences even before I was an academic, which mm-hmm. is a very unusual thing to do, uh, but really enjoyed hearing you know, the journeys of these different professors and, and doctoral students. And so I applied from Singapore to a bunch of programs back mm-hmm. in the US, in business schools in particular, mm-hmm. to try and explore this business and environment space. And mostly that took me to strategy departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some, some I got into, but they said, you know, we like your profile, but if, could you study something else? Because we don't really have people studying this, or they I might see. be le- leaving. Right. And so, uh, so the best fit for me really was uh, when I got into the business and public policy program at UC Berkeley's Haas School, uh, and there there were ample people who were intrigued by this idea. They didn't have a ton of people working on environment, but they had this idea of business and public policy. Uh, being an important mesh. And I thought that was a great fit, again, with my business, a little bit of business experience now and my government uh, major as an undergraduate, the business public policy really made a lot of sense for me. And at Haas, for your dissertation, you had a really stellar uh, dissertation committee. Yeah. The the folks at Berkeley are just amazing. So I was able to assemble a team, uh, really, from my perspective, an all-star team. So Mm -hmm. I had David Levine, who mm-hmm. is a labor economist, who was mm-hmm. who was increasingly interested in environmental issues and is doing a bunch of health work. Um, David Vogel, who's an environmental po- public policy person, mm-hmm. so bring bring he was a, a political scientist, so he brought that very different perspective. And then at the law school, uh, an economist, Howard Shalansky, who taught me a lot about the regulatory perspective and sort of how politics works in this area. So I was really grateful to to have all three of them on my committee. And what was your thesis, your dissertation? So my thesis was looking at uh, the effectiveness uh, of various environmental programs. And so one of them was looking at the ISO 14000 program, a mm-hmm. voluntary program that right. companies can opt into yes. uh, and then get certified. Mm-hmm. And so the question there is, is it attracting better than average environmental performers or worse than average? That's mm. one question. Another is... Do companies actually improve their environmental performance once they get certified to this program? So that was one of my papers. Another was looking at EPA has launched a bunch of voluntary programs at the time, programs that companies can opt into. And so one of them was called the audit policy, which is if you as a company engage in internal environmental auditing and that uncovers a compliance violation and you come forward with that fairly rapidly with a mitigation plan, then EPA agrees not to penalize you. It's a quite an interesting program because it, you could just fix the problem and hope that therefore the next time EPA visits you, they the problem won't be there. So mm-hmm. why come forward with it? Right. It was a bit of a puzzle. 
And so we looked at that program as well uh, to see who was opting into that program and then some other work. So the, the common theme, this was sort of a, the, the classic three papers dissertation, the right. common theme was looking at when do com- what leads companies to adopt these various programs mm-hmm. and then what happens once they adopt them, sort of a selection effect and a treatment effect in the economics language. Now, that, that kind of work of looking at voluntary environmental management initiatives is something that's characterized some of your work since you graduated while you've been a professor as well, which began at Harvard Business School. Is it in 2006? Yep, that's right. I came to HBS uh, at Harvard Business School in 2006, and I've been fortunate to uh, overcome the two upper out opportunities that we have, and I and they I got to stay. So I've been working on really two research streams. One is um, back to occupational health and safety mm-hmm. and looking at uh, how can, in the U.S., how can regulators make better choices about improving workplace safety? And then in in the global uh, supply chain context where companies, in a way, are quasi-regulators because they're operating in domains where that have weak regulatory regimes, so companies themselves are having to set standards for working conditions and either going in themselves or hiring third parties to go and check the factories to see whether they're adhering to these standards. That's been one stream of work on the occupational Mm -hmm. health and safety. And then the other side has been looking at more really voluntary environmental efforts, um, most recently on decarbonization Mm -hmm. to see what are companies doing, why and how, and how effective are these. So that's been the two research streams that I've been pursuing ever since. Now, in the nearly two decades then since you received your PhD, I suspect that you've seen some significant changes in the world of business scholarship on the environment. If that's true, um, what stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, the changes have been profound. When I applied to PhD programs, you know, this topic was very fringe. And even when I was applying for academic jobs in 2006, people were you know, had advised me to say, you know, make sure you talk about strategy or operations first and use environment as just an example, that it could be any example, but this happens to be the example that you've chosen, you know, really trying to protect me and and help me get a job in a world where this this was seen as, you know, are you a greenie? You know, is this a political thing? And and now really this whole thing has completely changed where uh, most business schools now are leaning into the idea of, environment and climate in particular is a big deal and scholarship is really exploding on these topics. So that's been been really heartening to see. In addition, students' interest in this has really risen incredibly in mm-hmm. the in the 17 years that I've been yeah. here. Originally, no one talked about environment. Now, even five, five years ago, three years ago, Students are bringing these up. They're demanding more content. They're in a topic that we might be talking about supply chains and uh, fast fashion, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been aware, and people studying this have been aware that that's got pretty severe environmental consequences. It hadn't been the focus of the lessons that we've been teaching, and so it hadn't been mentioned in the past, you know, ten years ago. Right now, now in a classroom. You can't have that conversation without students themselves bringing up. But what about the environmental consequences of all this additional materials and transportation that's evoked when you've got clothing that you only wear a few times before it disintegrates or before you get rid of it? And so that's been really interesting to see as well. And these are, you know, the future leaders going out mm-hmm. into 
management roles who are going to bring this mentality uh, to bear. And I, I'm super excited about these these uh, developments. I mean, one way that I can quantify in my mind the change in business scholarship on the environment is that in 1988, that's the year I got my PhD and joined the Kennedy School uh, faculty, there were no faculty members at Harvard Business School who I was aware of who were really focused on environment. And then shortly after that, Forrest Reinhardt joined. It was the first. And I think now, are there four or five perhaps on the faculty? Well, actually, the number is much greater than that. Oh, really? I, oh, okay. They, Tell yeah. us. Well, there. I mean, I think it might be fair to say there's about five or six of us for who's the who spends the majority of their time on environmental work. That's what I was but, thinking of. Yeah. yeah. But there's it, really, it's quite amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, we probably have 25 people on our faculty. You know, we have a big faculty of 200 plus. Yes. But 25 to 35 really mm -hmm. who've done, who've written cases or are teaching or doing some research in areas that touch on environmental issues. And they range anywhere from how do extreme weather events, which are becoming more frequent with climate change, affect consumer spending? We had a seminar yesterday where we were talking about that on the finance unit to mm -hmm. how does the IRA compare to uh, Chinese approaches uh, of public policy to, to foster decarbonization? Uh, and so that's on our, in our business government and the international economy unit. We have folks in our accounting area who uh, are learning about carbon accounting mm -hmm. and learning and teaching about carbon accounting. Mm -hmm. uh, so really across many of our, of our departments, which we call units here, uh, there's really growing interest and growing uh, personnel who are either being hired or whose interests are just evolving in this area. So it's really even exciting to see. Now, likewise, at the same time as you've been observing and participating in those changes in the world of business scholarship on the environment, you've probably also seen some very significant changes in the business world itself in the realm of environmental management. Again, what stands out to you there? Yeah, I mean, there what's very interesting it are both the movement on the finance side where you've got a lot deeper pockets of, of capital, pools of capital that are seeking out climate solutions, for example. Uh, you've got this whole ESG area that's evolved with your putting new screens on the types of investments that they want to include in their portfolio. Uh, you've got companies making these net zero commitments, uh, which includes a combination of decarbonizing their operations and their supply chain, and then using carbon credits to offset the residual and a bunch of commitments in that regard will, remains to be seen whether those commitments are turning into real action. We could talk about that on the research side in a minute. Uh, so really a lot of action and, and or a lot of talk and mm -hmm. some action. And we it remains to be seen which of this talk will translate into action. And that's long been a interest of mine, like our companies following up with uh, with action, who is, who isn't. And so that that continues to be an interest of mine. We We will see. A lot of the my research in this area has taken the form of case writing because so much of this is so new mm -hmm. and we don't have years and years of data sets uh, to do the type of empirical work that my scholarly work tends to, to gravitate toward. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're learning in real time through cases and then doing some, some uh, empirical scholarship as well. But it's been, it's been very interesting to see the, the variety of talk coming out on these issues. And yet- so lots of companies are are business as usual. Lots of companies don't mm -hmm. really want to talk about this. Right. A lot of a lot of <laughs> folks in the U.S. are 
kind of confused about whether this is a real trend or whether these phenomenon of climate change is even real. So it's a, a real muddled space right now. Now, at the same time as this work is continuing, can you say something about, you know, your assessment uh, of ESG proclamations and performance? I mean, is, you know, from one extreme of greenwashing to the other extreme of highly effective uh, voluntary initiatives are really making a difference. Um, what What's your, you know, sort of basic short statement of where you see things? Well, uh, so I have not done a lot of work looking at the effectiveness of ESG claims in okay. particular on their, on their stock performance, mm-hmm. but certainly there's a lot of work out there. Mm-hmm. It's a controversial claim to, to imagine that uh, incorporating more constraints in your portfolio would somehow lead to improved performance, but yet some people have found some evidence of that. But one thing I'll just say is my observation is that there's a lot of confusion around what this domain even is. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, first of all, you know, the idea of combining environment, social, and governance into one bucket has never made a ton of sense to me. I agree. Uh, I, yeah. I think they're each important issues right. in their own right. Right. The other thing that gets confused is that some of these efforts, let's just take climate, for example, some of these efforts are meant to protect the firm, to make them more resilient. For example, to if climate prices arise or carbon taxes or cap and trade results in pricing carbon, how will that affect this company relative to their competitors? And so if you're decarbonizing because you're worried about this price shock that will affect your cost of goods sold, and you'd like to be less affected by that than your competitor, that's just a strategy move. It has nothing to do necessarily with your motive of improving the world. There's others who are actually interested in improving the world. They want to make investments because they think they're important to improve the world. They think that will be helpful to to their reputation or perhaps to their recruiting, but a very different motive. And of course, sometimes the same activities done for one or the other motive are sometimes both. And so this claim of woke capitalism that we're hearing lately is critiquing the whole endeavor where sometimes these efforts are actually done strictly from a business perspective and not from a trying to change the world perspective, which Mm -hmm. I think makes things quite confusing. Yeah, I was just in in Doha about a month ago talking with people at Qatar Energy because their performance with regard to methane emissions is among the best in the world in terms of its intensity. Mm. Um, and I wanted to find out a bit about why, because as you know, indeed you're you're part of it. We now have this Harvard University wide research and outreach initiative on reducing global methane emissions. So. I was asking them about that and wanted to find out when they had started these efforts, which were basic things in many cases, like replacing pumps with different types of pumps, patching uh, connections on pipes, et cetera, uh, as well as some more sophisticated uh, changes. And it was about 15 years ago. And, and, I, and, and I said, gee, 15 years ago, I never heard any talk myself about methane as an important greenhouse gas. I must have been out of the loop. And they said, no, of course, it had absolutely nothing to do with the environment. What it was is that we got an order from on high to increase uh, the margins that we were coming up with in the company. And one way to do that is to stop sending out into the atmosphere a merchantable product. And so they had done it for, you know, reasons of profitability, just like what you were just describing. 
Yeah, super interesting. And uh, folks in, in many industries have figured out that the idea of patching leaks, whether it be air compressor leaks or, or other types of leaks like you're describing, can be what we call win-wins, which mm-hmm. are good for the environment and also good for your bottom line. But unfortunately, there's also this rhetoric that is just not true, which is that we can solve all these problems if only we looked harder for these win-wins. And there's lots of places where that's just not going to happen, which is why we need regulation right. to, to add prices to these costs and so that the firms bear them and not society. And that will create new incentives for firms to, to look harder for those opportunities. You're warming my heart, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So I'll give a plug for something I just read. There's an article or I guess an editorial perhaps in The Economist uh, magazine uh, by our former Harvard colleague, who you know well, Mike, that David Keith. Um, mm. And he's commenting on the fact that Occidental Petroleum recently agreed to buy carbon uh, engineering, a carbon removal company. And then he poses the question, more or less the question you've been asking as to what degree is this some greenwashing um, for various reasons that they'd want to do this, although the purchase price was $1.6 billion. Um, to what degree is it just to balance out so they can keep on going with their core business? To what degree is it evolving into a different business? And as is David's way, he presents a very sensible, balanced assessment, at least in my view. So I commend that to our listeners. Great. I hadn't seen that. I look forward to reading it. It is worth reading. Uh, So I want to take one stab at something specific from your research. I know it's asking you, like, you know, which is your favorite child, but if there was one of your research products, whether it's, you know, a statistical analysis or it's a case that you've written, doesn't matter, that that you're most proud of, what what would it be? So I've heard you ask this question to others, and I've also heard their responses. And so I'm a little bit prepared to answer this by answering how some of them did, which okay. is, I'll give you two. Okay. Yes, that's inevitable. <laughs> so, and these are very recent projects, so I'm not really answering mm-hmm. exactly your question of all time, yeah. but recent question, recent projects, and one is a case and one is an academic uh, scholarly work. Mm-hmm. And then they span my two research streams. So they're mm-hmm. also a little bit just drawn from the different worlds in which I operate. On the, on the scholarly research uh, side, this is a study that's just coming out in uh, AEJ uh, Applied Micro, uh-huh. uh, a, a leading journal or field journal, depending on how you characterize it, uh, that looks at how the effectiveness of US OSHA, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration's efforts to target companies for inspection. So mm-hmm. OSHA is dramatically underfunded in the sense that they can maybe inspect every establishment that they regulate every hundred years. And so they really need to make some tough decisions about where to go. And traditionally, they've been making these decisions for a lot of their inspections based on where the problems have arisen in the past, where are safety risks problematic from the past. And we conjecture and find some evidence that if they change that using more modern uh, techniques and machine learning to figure out and predict where are problems more likely to be in the future or where might their inspections do the most good in the sense that having the, the highest treatment effect? So if I go to one fa- two factories have lots of problems, one of them 
after I go there as an inspector, they're likely to reduce those problems. The other one, they're likely to keep those problems going and be mm -hmm. insensitive. Maybe we should go to the one that'll reduce the problems because our mission as an institute, as an agency, is not to collect fines, but rather to improve workplace safety. So let's go to places where we can actually make a difference. And what we show is that through either of these other regimes, predicting where the where the problems are highest in the future or where we can make the most good has can dramatically improve workplace safety at the same budget because we're not saying add a bunch of inspectors we understand there's constraints based on you know how congress decides to allocate money mm -hmm. but if EPA it, sorry in this case if OSHA can reallocate where they send their inspectors based on either of these regimes we predict that they can really reduce injuries in the thousands uh, with millions of dollars of of consequences of, of reduced injury, uh, pain and suffering. So that's uh, a very recent paper that uses some modern uh, machine learning techniques that I'm really proud of. Let me just say with that very recent paper, it strikes me as interesting, partly because I haven't seen such analysis of those kinds of questions recently. But if we go back a ways, Wayne Gray and his co-authors you probably are aware of this. Yeah, yeah. We're doing a lot of similar work. And in fact, some of our PhD students who are now professors in various places, uh, we're doing dissertation work where one of their essays would be. But all of that is is back five or probably 10 years back. So yeah. Yeah. We, we build on that work. We describe it. Um, they didn't have some of the machinery that we have available to us now. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's a big advance, right? So the ideas aren't new about where can and how can inspectors be more productive in their efforts, mm -hmm. but the machinery that we have now is new. That uh, you know, and this is really off-the-shelf machinery that uh, that any regulatory agency with the right motivation and the right staffing can can deploy. So that was our effort to explore that. Oh, that's particularly interesting because I was thinking of it only as a research technique, but this is also potentially a management approach. Then, oh, for the absolutely, oh. yeah. I would say all of the work that I do. Um, part of the selection criteria that I use as a research question is, can I imagine a policymaker or manager actually benefiting from the insights right. that we that we develop and actually improving the the function of their of their work? There was also a case that you were going to comment. Yeah. On. So the case I'll comment on is a case that uh, I wrote with two colleagues here at uh, at HBS, Shirley Liu and George Serafim. We wrote it on BMW and their efforts to decarbonize. They've taken a very interesting approach. It's a very engineering-focused company. So they have a very engineering orientation to carbon accounting, to mm -hmm. carbon management, to reduction, of, and to even their publicity around all of this. And their CEO has taken a perspective that whereas other companies are having these phase-out dates for the internal combustion engine, they've declared, you know, we're going to not produce carbon uh, internal combustion engines after such year, they've said, we're not going to make that claim because we don't know if we can keep that promise in part because we don't know if the infrastructure is going to be there to power electric vehicles. And will it be electric or will it be hydrogen powered fuel cells? Like we're not really sure where the technology will shake out. So they've been reluctant on the BMW brand to make such uh, promises because they have a culture of they want to make not make promises that they know they can't you know until they know they can keep them and so that's an interesting and somewhat controversial take these days in the auto industry now that so many companies have made this other pitch and so we profile this uh, all of these issues in a case study that's meant to teach 
MBA students and undergraduate business students the fundamentals of carbon accounting. And what does it mean to have scope one, scope two, scope three emissions? Uh, how do you go about getting that data? Where do you have to make estimations? What are the risks of doing so? And then this really the strategy question about should we make this phase out decision and try and align our R&D efforts on just one or two technologies, or should we continue to push forward with four, which is what their current uh, approach is? And that's been a, a case we rolled out here at HBS in our core accounting class. And so last year we launched it. It's going to be taught again this year. So for the first time in, in history at HBS, all of our students are going to graduate with some fundamental understanding of carbon accounting. And we're hoping for, uh, for this case to be adopted more widely, really, uh, HBS cases are often used around the world. And so we're hoping to seed the world with managers who have a, a better understanding of some of these really fundamental issues of climate change. And I've been privileged uh, to be in the classroom when you brilliantly taught that case. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I was enjoy- I've taught it to a, a session, a, a program that you led yes. at the Kennedy School of, of practicing managers and, uh, and policymakers. Exactly. I mean, I, I will say to our listeners that for those of you like me, who have not gone to business school, have, do not have an MBA degree. And to those of you who have never had the experience of seeing a great case method business school professors like Mike and his colleagues at Harvard Business School teach, if you haven't had that opportunity and you can witness it at least online through uh, at some website, it will be inspiring. I, I, as as a professional teacher myself, my jaw drops when I watch all of you from Harvard Business School teach. It is in this, it's an inspiring experience, but it's one that also makes me very modest about my own teaching. <laughs> well, thank you for the thank you for the kudos. We we do put a lot of effort uh, uh, and time into into learning the craft and to conveying it to our our junior faculty. So it is definitely a focus of, of area here. All right. So while you're marketing uh, me and, and my colleagues at HBS, let me also throw in two pitches for one, two other things I'm proud of that mm-hmm. require a little bit of marketing. So one is the the new, you mentioned Forrest Reinhardt earlier. Mm-hmm. He and I have been working hard over the past few years, including interviewing a number of folks, including yourself, mm-hmm. uh, to develop a new HBS online course, which is really a primer on business and climate change. And that covers uh, a bit of the science, the policy, the economics, and then also what are companies doing on adaptation? What are the stresses that they're facing? How are they actually responding to that? And then on the mitigation side, what are, what are motivating companies to go above and beyond regulatory requirements to, to mitigate their effort, their impacts on climate? And, uh, and we trace a bunch of companies. That's coming out um, in the first quarter of 2024. That's where we're going to launch it. Where will people go? I mean, uh, on yeah. the internet to find that in early 2024. Yeah. So just Google HBS online and it'll be profiled right there okay. um, with the rest of the program. Great. So that's, that's, that's um, very exciting. And then the other piece that I've been doing in part really to learn about these efforts, as I mentioned, there's so, it's such a fast moving space right now that we don't have you know, the, the many years of data sets uh, to draw upon. We're, I'm doing a, a, my own podcast, as, as I think mm-hmm. you know, called uh, Climate Rising here at HBS. Mm-hmm. And that is a series of interviews that I do with mostly business people mm-hmm. um, from existing you know, large companies like mm-hmm. Google or McKinsey or HP, 
a lot of startup companies, and then some NGOs as well mm-hmm. to learn what's going on in this space of business and environment. We focus mostly on decarbonization and technologies, um, but also we're going to do some work on adaptation in the coming episodes. So I wanted to just put my plug in for that. For those who are interested in the space of business and climate change, it's a, a fun listen. It launches, it, it drops episodes every two weeks. And again, how do people locate that? Yeah, so it, it come go to any podcast player uh, to find uh, Climate Rising, or you can look up climaterising.org, and that'll bring you to the to the links. That's fantastic. Well, listen, Mike, thank you very much to take time to chat with us today. This has been great, at least from my perspective. Yeah, Rob, thank you so much. I'm an avid listener to the podcast, and I will skip this episode because you know, it's hard <laughs> to listen to yourself, but, but I will look forward to your other episodes. That's great. My guest today has been Michael Toffel, the Senator John Hines Professor of Environmental Management and Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.com. .hks.harvard.edu